This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's also set the Business Week agenda. Got to talk a little bit about the market trade here. Sarah Ponzek is with us, cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News. She's on the phone in New York City. Dave Wilson, our stock editor at Bloomberg News, uh, on the phone from New Jersey. So, Sarah, let's start with you. What kind of interesting moves are you seeing in the trade today? So, honestly, it's really shocking in a way that you have oil prices, WTI crude oil as we speak, below $20 a barrel Coming into the trading day, there were a lot of warnings, a lot of research notes, emails going around saying this could be um, another rough day in the markets, considering the extremely large gains, that rally that we saw last week, and now oil plunging yet again. Yet, you look at the market and we see equities higher for four or four, say, and five. So, it really is right. pretty striking, the fact that we're seeing this resilience once again, and you have the likes of J.P. Morgan, cross-asset strategist, saying that maybe the lows truly are in. And even Mike Wilson, who's been bearish, he was on Bloomberg Television this morning, and he said he doesn't even think that we will go back and retest those lows. Now, of course, you have many people on the other end of the spectrum, too, saying that this is just a bear market bounce. But the resiliency today does make you at least question it. All right, Dave Wilson, come on in here. Uh, set the scene for us from your perspective. You're looking at sectors. You're looking at individual names. What do you see in this trade that feels different from what we've seen over the last couple of weeks? Frankly, not a whole lot. I mean, you talk about energy stocks being down. We've gotten used to the idea since last year that energy has been a weak sister uh, when you look at the main industry groups in the S&P 500. And when you see what's up today – technology stocks, and we've certainly seen them at the forefront of the market's uh, performance, even in this current bear market. I'll have more about that next hour with my chart of the day. And on top of that, the defensive areas, healthcare, utilities, the makers of consumer staples, food, beverage, tobacco doing relatively well. Real estate is a bit of an exception today because it's, you know, a little changed and you're finding issues. I mean, let's face it, we're coming up on April 1st. We already know the Cheesecake Factory isn't going to be paying rent on any of their restaurants. And you got to presume there are going to be a whole lot of other companies following their example. Can I, can so I just say why real that hurting. my husband and I have been talking about that. That's remarkable because anytime you've ever gone to a Cheesecake Factory, it is packed. The lines are out the door. So if a chain like that is having troubles, you know, it just is indicative of just so so many of those independently owned restaurants. You just, you know, it's very clear how troubling this time is going to be for them. I just, I think it's interesting. And David speaks to a larger real estate story, commercial and even residential. If folks aren't able to pay their mortgage or if businesses aren't able to pay their rent, that has a ripple effect through um, our economy. Oh, it absolutely does. And we've already seen that play out with what they call the mortgage REITs, mm-hmm. real estate investment trusts that either uh, lend money for properties or buy mortgage-backed securities. And they have really taken a hit this month, much more so than the broader market. 
And I just want to point out, you know, with Cheesecake Factory, the shares are actually higher today. Wow. And you had a firm, Guggenheim, come in and raise their 12-month price estimate by 15% to $30 a share. They figure that Cheesecake Factory is going to be okay in the long run yeah. once they get past the issues in front of them now that are keeping them from, at least in their own uh, plans, from paying the rent. And so Sarah Ponzak uh, is still with us. Help us understand whether that is consistent across the, the trade and investors' mindset at this point. Are people just saying, all right, well, let's see what's going to be good in the long term and just look past the next 60 days? Well, you know what's really standing out to me today, and I think is, is a little different, is the fact that we're back to that norm where you have tech outperforming once again, you have healthcare outperforming once again, particularly the likes of Abbott Labs, also Johnson & Johnson. But you're back to that scenario where the likes of Boeing, your airlines, your transport companies are the ones falling. And that is a bit telling because if you were to look, there's a basket that Goldman Sachs tracks of the most sorted stocks. And today, it's actually down, but very, very slightly. So you're not seeing this giant rally in the stocks that were beaten up most. So you're not seeing this huge short squeeze in the market, which we did see in some of those major rallies last week. So we're back to this more sustainable buying, sustainable buying of the names that people have loved over the past 10 years, over the past bull market. Right. Uh, and I think that's a bit telling about the structure of the rally today. All right, Sarah Ponzak, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Sarah Ponzak is a cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us from New York City, Dave Wilson. We are going to talk to him next hour, as he alluded to, for his chart of the day. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we got a lot of news uh, over the weekend and certainly continuing this morning, Jason. Uh, Spain reporting fewer deaths today. Uh, you had President Trump abandoning his ambition to return America to uh, kind of normal life by Easter. Uh, cases now of the virus topping 737,000. 35,000 have lost their lives. 156,000 um, have recovered. This is according to Johns Hopkins. Let's talk about this. Dr. Rhonda Meadows is president at Health Management at Providence St. Joseph Health. Uh, the first U.S. case of the virus was confirmed in Washington State at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everest. And uh, this is all part of a big uh, major health system. Dr. Meadows, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, tell us where we are in terms of either finding a vaccine or a better test so that we can somehow get our, head, our hands around uh, the virus maybe sooner rather than later. Oh, good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me. As far as the vaccine is concerned, that is somewhat out on the horizon. We're looking at about a year from now. What we're most concerned with now is actually getting the personal protective equipment and the mask to our frontline caregivers, our doctors, nurses, EMS, and first responders. We're also doing the work of actually updating our projections on potentially the worst-case scenario and making sure that we have sufficient supplies, including ventilators. And so, Dr. Meadows, what have you seen change either in the sort of the the progression of the outbreak or the preparedness, especially in the last week or two, as you've learned a lot there on the ground and you've also watched cities like New York uh, and San Francisco and others grapple with this? So what we have seen over the last week or so is um, trickling in of the personal protective equipment and some masks. 
we get a couple of days at a time when we do get some supplies from some domestic suppliers. Our international suppliers are still delayed in getting the big bulk of the equipment and supplies that we need. Um, we are seeing, um, with the good effort of the American people, um, the efforts to do the uh, stay in place and the social distancing. And the more we do it, the further along we will be in terms of slowing, slowing the rate of the spread of the virus itself. Um, that means that in some places like Seattle and um, the West Coast, where we have been addressing this for a little over two months now, since that first case, January 21st, um, that we actually are seeing um, that we can actually manage um, the patient populations that are coming in. However, if we delay or become delinquent in doing those social distancing to stay at home, we could see another surge that can overwhelm our health care system. You um, start on the East Coast. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Please continue. No, I was going to say on the East Coast, our brethren are overwhelmed, right? They have a large number of people in population-dense areas, and they more than, than anyone else need additional help in getting the supplies for their front line. It's interesting what you said about, you know, accessing your domestic and international suppliers. How is um, the federal government helping and maybe, you know, figuring out the domestic and international suppliers, pulling in those resources and making sure it gets to the hospitals and the medical care um, professionals or the medical professionals who need it? Is the government playing a, a bigger and a better role, if you will, in all of that? I think the, uh, the federal government is beginning to play a role, um, probably not as aggressively as some of us would like, uh, but we do see some of the effort. Um, we actually went out on our own to actually procure the masks, the personal protective equipment, the, the ventilators, anything and everything we've needed. We've actually gone on our own. We've worked with our state partners who have been great um, to work with us. Um, but part of the original problem, uh, Carol and Jason, is that we are starting off with a blindly. We don't have the surveillance data. We don't know what the original denominator baseline was. So we're having to assume the worst case uh, scenario. And so our projections may seem large and alarming to you folks, but it's because if we don't prepare and act toward uh, addressing the worst case, we will be sh surely in trouble if we don't do that. Um, so we're seeing some, um, some questions and some requests we have not received any ventilators from the federal government. Um, they would go um, when they are dispersed to state government and then be um, dispersed. We have not seen any come to Providence yet. And um, we have not seen any ventilators come locally, I mean, domestically or internationally. We are in queue with everyone else um, and everybody is trying. Uh, it kind of makes the, the use of the De Defense Production Act even more important um, to basically encourage um, non-traditional providers of equipment uh, to, to step up and help us get the supplies. Yeah. Right. Um, so last question for you, Dr. Meadows, before we let you get back to work. Uh, how important was it yesterday, the president coming out and basically saying, look, Easter is not going to make sense. We're going to go to at least uh, April 30th. Did that give you some, some sense of optimism that maybe this is being taken more seriously? It, it actually does. And I will tell you that we cannot slack off. We cannot step away. The social distancing and the stay at home must be maintained um, at least until April 30th. We'll have to see in other states what they need as well. We are basically facing waves of viral spread and health care as well as the viral spread is local. Right. We have to address it where it is. 
All right. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We know it is extraordinarily busy. Good luck. We're very grateful uh, for you for taking the time. We have learned so much mm-hmm. uh, in talking to you and your colleagues there in the state of Washington, uh, especially as we, as you point out, uh, we deal with a very overwhelmed system here on the East Coast. Dr. Rhonda Meadows is the president of health management at Providence St. Joseph Health. She joined us on the phone from Everett, Washington, as Carol said. Uh, that's where it all began uh, yeah. in the United States, or that's a, at least where uh, we first saw the U.S., the first domestic patient. Yeah, I feel like that what we've, our discussions with uh, her and her team um, have really been helpful in kind of understanding the spread of the virus and the impact of it. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as Carol mentioned, it's the most read story on the Bloomberg, and not surprisingly, this is at the heart of the financial side of this crisis. Michelle Davis wrote the story. She's a finance reporter for Bloomberg, one of our top shots. She joins us on the phone from Vermont. So, Michelle you, I'm sure like all of us, saw these headlines about corporations drawing down these revolvers. You went to the banking side, and what did you find? Well, so yeah, as you mentioned, I have been watching as lots of companies around the country have, just since March 9th, drawn more than $177 billion from revolvers. And uh, that means that banks have been, you know, at the same time, banks have been talking to companies and they've been saying, look, you know, if you don't really need the money right now and you are just tapping this revolver out of an abundance of caution, we'd advise you to please not do that. Um, And the idea is, you know, it's not anything having to do with liquidity concerns. The banks say they're there and they will honor any requests they get for revolver drawdowns. But it's really one person described it as, you know, trying to take a hot shower. If everyone tries to take a hot shower at the same time, some people are going to be left with cold water. And so in order to be able to get money to the companies or the people that need it the most and the quickest, Banks are asking, you know, the healthiest companies to kind of stand down so that they can prioritize getting access to these uh, other companies. Well, what's great about it, too, I love this line in your story and your reporting, Michelle, is for Wall Street, it's not an issue of liquidity so much as profitability. Explain that. So every time, well, first of all, uh, revolvers are technically just very low margin uh, instruments. Banks will extend them to companies as kind of a relationship thing, you know, like, this is here for you just in case, but they don't expect everyone to draw them down. They're, a lot of them aren't even profitable, and they're seen as kind of a, an entryway into other, you know, more expensive capital market deals or, or you know, M&A advice. Um, and so every time someone does draw down on one of these, the banks have to put aside more capital because of, you know, financial crisis rules. And so that does end up draining or hitting their profitability if, if everyone is doing it at the same time. Well, and it's interesting, too, in your story, a really important nuance is that you found evidence that some companies are saying, all right, banker, I'm going to give you a break on this one. I'm actually going to pay a little bit more. I believe McDonald's did this to go get a short-term loan so I don't do this at the risk of you know, maybe making you, Mr. Banker, and they're all misters, it feels like, uh, upset <laughs> down the line and maybe not giving me the attention that, that I want and feel like I deserve. That's correct. You know, when I first started hearing that bankers were were doing this, my first question was, why would any company agree to this? Like, why would they say, yeah, you know what, I'm just not going to draw down on this. And the idea is no one really knows what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks or months or or years even. And so companies, you know, see banks as a very stable resource for them. And the last thing they want to do is, is, you know, bother or put their banker, you know, on bad terms. And so, 
some of them, like McDonald's, have said, okay, um, we'll work with you on these short ter- shorter-term revolvers. Um, McDonald's actually went up for a 364-day revolving credit facility, drew down the entire thing, even though it hadn't yet tapped an existing $6 billion revolver that it had. Well, and what's interesting, though, is this is also illustrating by companies maybe tapping different sources, showing that the system's working, right? That companies can access money if they need it. Exactly. Yeah. And this shows like McDonald's, for example, by doing that, they kind of signal that they actually have additional funding sources. Um, I think for companies that are not as directly impacted by, you know, the economic fallout that's come from the majority of the country being on lockdown, if you can show if you can go to the bond market or go and get another uh, bank line right now and show that you actually don't need the money, but you actually you know, want to have it just in case that that communicates to investors that you're in a in a strong position. And well, I feel and, like oh, go ahead. Go I was ahead, gonna say go. I feel like banks are also signaling like, all right, you draw it down, but listen, I'm gonna make it up somewhere else yeah, <laughs> down well, the road. And I think that's a really important point and I'm glad you both made it earlier in the conversation, this idea of what we're really talking about is bank profitability here. And so as people read this story, there are probably a lot of people outside of Wall Street saying like, Oh, I'm sorry, you're not gonna make as much money, JP Morgan. <laughs> anyway. Um, that's a very technical term, <laughs> but in any case. Uh, Michelle Davis, thank you so much. Great reporting. Most Red story on the Bloomberg for a reason. A really smart look at how this is playing out, Carol. I I think it's a really smart story. Exactly. And it and you know, it's just um the understanding too of how it all works, right? Uh um so I think it's really important that uh that she wrote about it and that it's certainly something we discussed. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. This was a story, uh, let's be honest, we had to do this one, uh, Carol Masser, Mm -hmm, so into uh, this because we're obsessed with the world of fitness and it's all that much more important right now. Uh, Let's get into it with Mary Pallon. She is the writer of the story in Bloomberg Business Week this week. It's on the terminal and on Bloomberg.com today, along with the editor of the story and editor at the magazine, Sylvia Killingsworth, both of us both of them joining us on the phone. Mary, I want to start with you. First of all, great piece. Uh, help us what, understand what's going on in the world of boutique fitness. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. So this is one of the many industries that I think was completely transformed overnight. This was considered to be a really booming part of the economy, You know, whether we're talking about the big players, your crunches, your equinoxes, et cetera, but also a lot of small businesses. There's a whole cottage industry of these boutique, you know, classes, whether it's bar or Pilates or dance studios. And then with coronavirus, a lot of them had to close their doors overnight. Uh, They operate with very little runway usually, so they don't know how to pay rent for the next, you know, couple of months. And, you know, there's 350,000 fitness trainers and instructors, most of whom work as contractors. So unfortunately, this has also meant a lot of people uh, are out of a job and it's unclear, you know, kind of what what the future holds for them. I have to say, I do feel like there's these tensions within the fitness industry because every, we go to these fitness classes. I love it because I do have a sense of community with all my friends and sitting in a class and doing something. But I have to say this weekend, I did a yoga class by a beloved teacher through Zoom and it was 20 of us, 25 of us. It was pretty amazing. We could see each other um, and there was a sense of community. Sylvia, I do feel like this is going to be an interesting time and maybe there are some longer lasting uh, results uh, on the fitness industry as a result of the virus. 
That's absolutely the case. I think you're seeing, um, you know, you mentioned like yoga classes over Zoom. We also know about Peloton mm-hmm. um, is one of, or the Mirror, uh, for example, are those services where you can do a lot of in-home workouts. And I think you're going to see probably a lot of people shifting over to those businesses. And maybe, you know, when things reopen, who's going to stick with that? Who's going to go back to the studios? This is a really kind of like a pull. Uh, tug of war between those two things. But I think right now they're trying to play nice with each other. Um, the, the focus here was definitely those smaller business owners who um, have, you know, it's like usually an individual founder who goes off on their own rather than being part of a big gym. They take on a lot of risk. They take on a lot of debt. And, you know, now they're sort of reduced to essentially a staff of one. So we're looking at very much what is the, you know, sort of Put the put the business on ice option. How do you, how does one person keep a small studio um, afloat and for that time? And it's it's going to be really tough. Yeah, it's funny, Mary. I mean, my inbox is just full of these, you know, offers, you know, including from folks who are in your story like Box and Flow, Box Plus Flow, uh, and many others sort of shopping their wares. How does it change the business model, though, especially for these small guys? Sure. Well, you've got a lot of people racing to make these videos. And, you know, keep in mind, obviously, like at-home fitness is far from new. I mean, in some right. ways, it's almost like this return to like... It's a return. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a throwback. <laughs> and back then, you had to watch the same video over and over and over again. At least now we have all this variety. And so there's been, you know, players like Beachbody um, who've been doing this for a long time. And a lot of, you know, the bigger players had a whole video library that many of the members either didn't know about or didn't use as often. So, Or it was a, a subset of people who were really devoted to these companies. So I do think that we're going to see a big boom there. And I think that what's driving a lot of, um, you know, what you're alluding to is loyalty to studios. I think people who really love that, you know, local SLT teacher or bar teacher, it's a great way to support people and remain connected to a specific relationship you might have. Um, But a lot of that's being, you know, built overnight. So, you know, we talked to Sadie Kurtzman, who runs um, Purify Fitness, which has a pretty big footprint here in New York, but it's all over the place. She's now a one-woman company, and she is doing her dance classes at noon and six on her parents' porch in Miami in quarantine. So, you know, it's you know, she went from having a ton of really amazing studio space in New York to like this is and and thousands of people are tuning in because they are so devoted to you know her brand of dance classes. So I think we're going to see a lot of that, um, and that the scrappiness of quality sometimes can become part of what's endearing about it too. Mary, what are we hearing about in terms of the stimulus package and the help that, especially since so many of these are individuals or they're contractors, you know, what kind of assistance might be coming for them? Sure. So, you know, the gig economy, I kind of put quotes around that, Mm -hmm. um, that is in the stimulus package. Whether there's going to be anything specific for fitness or sports seems to remain, uh, remains to be seen. You know, a lot of industry trade groups, are already lobbying for relief. Um, the big one that I heard from people is rent relief, right? I mean, yeah. if, if a lot of these studios can weather or get some kind of forgiveness, you know, whether this lasts a month or two or three, I think that'll make a huge, huge difference because that's a huge cost because location is such a big deal in this industry. Um, and I think that's something that is being pushed really, really hard. So we'll see. And, you know, the irony, too, from a policy standpoint, is this is at a time when people need to be healthy, right? Like this could yeah. be a focus for a lot of folks. So it's interesting because you have an, an industry that's really struggling, yet there's demand, right? It's a little counterintuitive to how we kind of think about business. Yeah, totally. It's a, That's such a good point. And, and Sylvia, come back on in. I mean, 
I do think about this, and, and we've been sort of talking around this notion that we're going to have a bunch of businesses that are fundamentally changed by this crisis. How does this sort of figure in with other industries that you guys are looking at at the magazine? I'm really interested in what's going to happen in the restaurant and food industry. Yeah. I think um, you're going to see a very similar sort of um, you know, crush on these spaces, you know, again, they're physical spaces that people join together to do an activity. And, um, you know, you're going to see the same sort of crunch on rent and spacing. Um, you know, we're going to lose a lot of restaurants, but I think it's going to be interesting to see what we come out with on the other end of that. Yeah, no, it's really, really interesting. Thank you both so much. I, I was obsessed with this story as soon as it came out. And Carol and I, I think, both uh, saw some familiar yeah. names uh, in here, totally. things that we've done, folks we've talked to, like the CEO uh, over at Beachbody. It's a really, really nice read. Uh, Mary Pallon wrote it. She is a writer for Bloomberg Business Week. She joined us on the phone, as did Sylvia Killingsworth, an editor over at the magazine. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. It's also really important, and we talked about this on our planning call, that we do have to remember, I mean, it's hard not to forget, this is a global story. It's a virus that's impacting both developed and developing markets. So we want to talk a little bit about that, specifically the emerging markets, uh, especially Africa and the Middle East. Andy Brown is Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director. He joins us on the phone from New Hampshire. And, you know, I have to say, Andy, I have been watching, like, Africa and India, like some of these um, emerging markets because of their populations and also because of their conditions that so many people live in and how the virus might impact them. This is this could be just incredibly, incredibly um, damaging for these societies. It is it is really scary. I mean, obviously, the story here is that the coronavirus, the pandemic, it begins in China. It heads west. It ravages parts of Europe. It's rampaging through the United States. So far, so far, the emerging world, uh, the poorer countries of the world, have largely escaped the worst effects, and that is about to change. They're next in line. Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister of Ethiopia, was writing the other day. He said Africa is on the edge of an abyss. Um, you know, and the, pro the problem here is that these, these poorer countries, they neither have the institu institutional capacity of China. I mean, China was able to mobilize these massive state resources to fight a people's war and can largely contain the coronavirus. Neither does it have the advanced medical infrastructure that you have in country, richer countries of the West, or indeed their social welfare nets, which cushion the pain. And so it's going to be far, far worse for these countries, as you say, in the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and elsewhere. And so, Andy, I want to go back to, to where you started. Help us understand how emerging markets are different when it comes to this specific virus or, candidly, any sort of pandemic or infectious disease. Sure. So, you know, they, they are, by definition, many of them fragile economies and, and fragile in a number of ways. Um, they're fragile because they, they have already these un appalling underlying health conditions. So if you look at South Africa, where the RAND has collapsed, something like seven or eight million people in South Africa are living with HIV. 
you take a country like Egypt, 100 million people, 10%, around 10% of the population of Egypt are living with hepatitis C. You know, so you have, you have these, these, these underlying conditions exacerbated by poverty, and now you're, they're about to be hit by you know, COVID-19. That's, that's, on the, that's on the medical side. On the financial side, many of these economies have been piling up U.S. dollar debt. And they've been struggling to repay that debt even before, even before this, this uh, crisis erupted. So now they're looking at debt repayment when their economies are, uh, are in deep distress, commodity prices have fallen, tourism revenues have collapsed, um, the dollar is surging, and they're going to have a much, much more difficult time now repaying. Uh, these debts. Now, you, you, you take uh, Ethiopia, you look at a, you know, Ethiopian Airlines. I mean, one of the iconic airlines of globalization, along with you know, Emirates and Cathay Pacific. It is a major foreign exchange earner for Ethiopia. Of course, Ethiopian Airlines is in deep trouble, like all of the world's airlines. This means Ethiopia doesn't have the hard currency that it needs to import drugs, to import emergency medical gear, gowns and, and, and face masks and so on. I mean, it's, it's, it's economically brutal and medically devastating for these economies. Well, and the thing is, Andy, I mean, ultimately, once we get on the other side of this, I mean, we really need the global economy developed and developing to recover in order for the world to overall recover. Exactly. I mean, the, the metaphor people keep using is, is a forest fire, right? Mm. So, you know, you, you, can, you can contain a forest fire, but, you know, if you, have, if you have stray sparks coming in, you're going to very quickly reignite it. And, and what we're going to have, this situation is emerging economies acting as a sort of a, you know, a source for showers of sparks, which are, 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 are going to descend upon the countries that have already you know, re re recovered. And the truth is that you cannot have global health security. You cannot really declare victory against COVID-19 until the most vulnerable countries in the world have themselves defeated it. But uh, you do, but you do worry, right? And you do worry that, I mean, right now the developed world is struggling to deal with this. And so their ability to even lend a hand to the developing world, it's just not there right now or not to the, the extent we've seen in, in past crises. Yeah, ex ex exactly. I mean, you look at the way that, you know, even within the United States, states are now bidding against each other for medical equipment. Well, that's right. going to be happening in the case of countries, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and guess who's going to be a loser in that bidding war? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the other thing, Andy, before we let you go, just a minute or so left that I wanted to ask you is, you know, we are seeing, you know, sort of pictures, reading stories from Wuhan, you know, where so much attention was focused earlier in this year. We talked about it with you at the time. You were well ahead of it as a journalist and certainly helping keep us honest on what was happening over there. As you look at that situation, what are we learning? What can we take from what has happened with China that gives us some sense of what may happen next here in the West? Well, you know, there, there, there is light at the end of it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the story from China. But the, the real lesson from China, in addition, of course, to lockdowns, is mass testing. 
Um, you know, contact tracing, use of technology, all of government effort, individuals in we talked about this before, individuals in society taking responsibility yeah. for their own actions. Um, you know, we don't believe the numbers coming out of China. Uh, it's way worse than the numbers have suggested. I think that's very, very clear. But when I talk to my uh, friends in China who are running factories and businesses there, they're telling me that pretty much China is, is back on, the economy is back online. Their big problem now is the rest of the world, that their export markets are now being slammed, United States and, and Europe. All right, Andy Brown, always good to catch up with you. Really good context and a very important story. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. David Dietz is back with us, President and Chief Investment Officer at Point View Wealth Management. They've got roughly $7.5 billion in assets under management. Joining us uh, on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, um, I hope this finds you well, your family well. Um, good to have you here with us. Carol, we're all doing well. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, same here. Um, you know, I think we're all trying to make sense of just the day-to-day news, the hourly news updates. Um, we do have markets pretty much holding on to their best levels here uh, today. What? How would you describe kind of the mood of the market right now? So it's really a conflict here between investors bracing for uh, economic news, which is going to get uglier and uglier as layoffs pile up, unemployment rates go higher, uh, indexes of activity are going to go down, plus, of course, the very sad news of more infections, more deaths. Investors are bracing for that. However, arrayed against the other side are several things of hope here. One, of course, is we've heard some great news today from, for example, Johnson Johnson talking about a, a vaccine that uh, is being worked on and developed. We had some great news coming but out of that. But it won't be ready. But, but, I won't, but I will say that they also said it wouldn't be. It's like a first quarter, second quarter, maybe at its earliest of 2021. That's a long, that's a long way away. You know, it is long way away. And, of course, um, they're, of course, not the only uh, company, uh, biotech and pharmaceutical company, working on these things. I actually have a lot of hope that something else is going to be developed. And, you know, it may get tested offshore and be rushed to um, permission from the FDA if it's available. But, of course, we also need testing devices so we know where we're in safe spaces. And uh, Abbott Labs is now shipping a device that can tell in five minutes whether you're infected, 13 minutes to prove that you're not. So there's some help on the the healthcare front. And so, David, it feels like... The advice that we're hearing on the investment side is similar to what we're hearing from the health side in terms of our own, if, if we are fortunate enough to be healthy, which is stay put, stay in place, and don't and resist the temptation to sort of get out. Is that a fair, if slightly glib, uh, <laughs> characterization? Certainly, every investor needs to check their risk tolerance and continue to confirm what their investment horizon is. 
but let's put this into context. We've never seen, we've never not come back from a health scare over the last hundred years. We've never not come back from a bear market, from a panic and so forth. The question, of course, therefore, is how long is this going to last? We heard some news over the weekend that the uh, stay-at-home rules could be in place for perhaps as long as June, but certainly that is much shorter than most investors' horizons are. Of course, the other thing not to minimize is the resolve, the utter resolve by policymakers. We're just seeing record-setting amounts of fiscal stimulus that's soon going to be poured into the economy. Does that worry you, though, on the other side as well? I mean, is there a debt burden that the U.S. government is going to have problems with, especially if we get into an economy that slows down where the tax receipts aren't there. You know, I think most people would love to um, uh, worry about what's on the other side. They want to get there. But you are absolutely right, Carol. I don't think it's going to be a question as to whether uh, the government can honor the debt. I think ultimately what we've seen in other times where we've grossly expanded the amount of debt is an inflationary scare. And so I think given how low bond prices are today, uh, how high bond prices are today, how low yields are, and the fact that we could see an inflation scare down the road, I think ultimately um, perhaps a year or two down the road, inflation could be the problem, even though it's very hard to believe that now. And so, David, how do you invest? How do you look at stocks? How do you screen them right now? What are you looking for as you work through it with your team? Well, we, we start with going back out to our clients and saying, this is the time to rebalance. Look at your legacy asset allocation and bring the stocks up to where they were before the downturn started. Then in terms of uh, what stocks to buy, what sectors, I think job one is, is diversification. There is the tendency, however, to always go with what's been working, maybe you know consumer staples, utilities, some of the uh, uh, bulletproof balance sheets to some of the tech names, and there's certainly a solid place in your portfolio for that. But you may also want to take advantage of this downturn and look at some of the more cyclical names, which, um, if ultimately this stimulus does work and we get past this health care, should have some of the biggest rebound. Is there anywhere you don't want to be right now, David, in terms of sectors? I mean, we just talked about Macy's. I mean, they're laying off you know, almost all of their workers. And I know that that's been a troubled retailer for some time, but is there any industry, any sector, any name specifically that you just don't want to touch right now? Well, certainly you know, those trends that were in place, like the the um, uh, transition from in-store purchases to online, uh, seem to be getting accelerated during this downturn. So uh, those are things that you really have to look at who are the survivors and who are, aren't. But I would have to say the biggest things I would avoid is some of these smaller biotech names and so forth, which have gone up tremendously on hopes of some sort of drug that's really unproven. And of course, some of the uh, manufacturers of consumer staples. I think you're a little late now to be getting into cleaning supplies and things along those lines. Other than that, I think everything can work. All right, we're going to leave it there. David Dietz, great to catch up with you. Glad to hear that you and the family are well there in Summit, New Jersey. David Dietz is the president and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.